0: So glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, one thing I want to say just to all the kids here, there 4:12 this week, okay? Spring break is happening, but we're still having 4:12. 12 um, so make sure you come Wednesday night. It's going to be an awesome time. I'm ready to read some scripture this morning. Uh, are you ready to hear it? All right, good. Then open your Bibles up or follow on the screen to John chapter 20, and we'll be reading verses 19 through 31 this morning. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After this, he said, he he showed them his hands inside and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come To worship you, Lord, and many of us in our hearts are waiting to hear from you, Lord. So we stand or we sit ready, Lord, with open ears and open hearts, wanting to hear from you. And we claim this blessing that you give to those of us who have not seen you yet still believe. Lord, may our hearts be filled with faith. Even though doubt might, may creep in, as it did for Thomas, Lord, we ask today that the power of the gospel would overcome every barrier in our hearts. Lord, we also claim the, the promise that's found in the book of Isaiah that says that when your word goes out, it will accomplish all that you have purposed it to do so. And we know that as our pastor Mike comes to share these words, Lord, he does so under the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, speak through his lips and open our ears and hearts so that we can hear from you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
1: So some really cool things have already happened in worship today for me. Um, and I want to share a little bit about it. <clears throat> when we were praying earlier uh, in one of, uh, I think Simon was, was speaking, I heard a little child Back in the back, giggling. And I want to tell you two things about that. One, it's great to hear children in church. And secondly, if we believe that prayer is going to the throne room of God, if we believe that prayer is like sitting on our Heavenly Father's lap, why wouldn't a child be giggling during the prayer? That's what we would be doing on our dad's lap, right? Wonderful. And secondly, this is exciting too. Pastor Keith said, hey, it's spring break, but we're still having 4:12," And I heard somebody go, yes! Isn't that Awesome. That's like, yay, high five, yay, awesome stuff. I'm proud to be the pastor and to be one of the pastors at a church um, like that. And I want to make sure, are you awake? Have you had enough coffee? Do we need to do any spiritual calisthenics, you know, to get you guys going up here? Are you awake? Can I get an amen? amen. All right, because I'm fixing to preach the gospel here in a minute. I, I had a funny experience uh, earlier this week. <clears throat> Somebody that comes to our 945 service bumped into me um you know they meant to but they bumped into me and said hey pastor mike um the whole time i've been coming to your church i've only been coming here about a year the whole time you've been preaching on john and now we're coming to the end do you and pastor keith know what to do next interestingly enough we do know how to preach on other things and we're planning to do it um the General Conference of the United Methodist Church meets every four years, and 2016 is one of the years it does that in. And of course, we we look at what's called the Book of Discipline, which sits below our, our Bibles, our rule, our theological uh, documents are in there, our social principles are in there, and our rule of how to uh, how to set up committees and all that kind of stuff's in there. So we're going to meet in Portland for, for 10 days, there's a thousand of us going out there. Um, but so, so that, because you'll hear about some stuff in the news... Um, about that meeting because it's kind of a big deal in protestant circles Um, we're going to spend about five weeks talking about united methodist theological distinctions we're all of course within the uh, under the umbrella of god's uh, protestant christianity and we want to look at a few things that kind of where we as methodists um, uh, fall under so we want to really look uh, at that so as for today Last week we looked at the first resurrection appearance of Jesus in John chapter 20. Today we're going to look at the second two resurrection appearances in John chapter 20. And I'm really just going to launch into this with four questions. So there's four questions that I intend to answer uh, during this uh, series or or during this service today. And I hope maybe as you write them down you might like do some introspection and, and answer those for yourself. So here it is. Question number one. What is the church to celebrate on Easter? Now... Those of you that have been coming to Marion Methodist for for a while, you know that I like to break into this rhythm on our Easter morning services. And and it's I've been doing it for thirteen years and we do it several times through the service and all the way through the sermon I'll say, Christ is risen, you say? Christ is risen. Well, let's try it with gusto though. Christ is risen. Okay, that's what I want to, you know, because this is, uh, you know, our Lord and Savior coming up out of the grave. We need to give, oh, he's risen indeed. All right, let's 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 give it something. All right, so you're going there with us. So so when we celebrate on, on Easter, we celebrate that the sign of the gospel, the signs in the gospel point to some magnificent reality beyond what we're looking at right now. Here's what I mean. See, signs always point to things, but the sign is not the thing. Okay, like if you're driving in Iowa this afternoon and you come upon one of those yellow signs that's got the you know the arrow pointing that there's a curve, I admonish you not to start turning right there. Okay, wait until the road turns. The sign is telling you it's coming. the the thing the curve it's pointing to is up there. Now, now I always get a kick out of it because I have a daughter that lives in Colorado. We used to live in Colorado, so we go back and forth to Colorado a little bit. And have all of you a lot of you been to Colorado? Okay, enough of you that you'll know this point of reference. So when you're driving into Colorado on Interstate 70, Interstate 76, Interstate 80, wherever you're coming in on, you come into these big giant signs. They're usually brown. They got these big honking, uh, you know, poles holding it up. And it says on there, colorful Colorado. You seen the sign? You know what I'm talking about? That's their kind of thing. And no matter what part of the state you're coming in on, what road, there's always a turnout there because tourists love taking their pictures by that. And I remember last time I was driving there, there was this little girl, I'm driving, you know, going right, just right at the maximum lawful allowed speed limit as I pass by. I'm right there. And there's this little girl and she's hugging the colorful Colorado sign down below. But here's the thing. If you've ever come into Colorado anywhere, it's not colorful unless you love brown. Right, I mean, out in eastern, out in eastern Colorado, whether you're coming in from Kansas or from or, or Nebraska, all you're seeing is tumbleweeds and brown. And if you come in from the west side, all you're seeing is desert. And if you come in from the south, all you're seeing if is is desert. If you come in from the north, you shouldn't be there. Okay, um, it's too snowy. But 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 it's not colorful there. The sign points to if you drive a couple more hours, you're going to see the majesty of the Rocky Mountain. And some of the things that they bring. But the signs are not the thing. Signs always point to the thing. And the same is true in the scriptures. You know, when we get into the gospels. In in John, it doesn't call what we call miracles, miracles. It calls them signs. It says this sign Jesus performed. And then it would tell what he did. When he changes 150 gallons of water into wine. It says this Sign Jesus performed at Cana of Galilee. When Jesus feeds the five thousand, it says, "This sign he did on the Galilean hillside." When he when he when he changes a man from blind to sighted, it says, "This sign he performed, so others might see that he's the Son of God." Signs point to something else, and the signs in the Gospels point not to themselves. The 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 feeding is not the thing, because people are going to be hungry tomorrow. Okay, the wine is not the thing because there's going to be another wedding some other day. They don't point to themselves. They point to what's beyond that, which is the one who is performing the signs, Jesus Christ, the son of God. See, at Easter, we celebrate the sign of Jesus' continued presence as the good shepherd. The sign of Easter is that Jesus isn't gone, you know? He's pointed to himself all the way through this. And on Easter, he, he, he shows up again and says, the good shepherd has not left, left you. And that's why on Easter Sunday, over and over again, we'll pronounce the words, Christ is risen. Yes. Indeed he has. And knowing that the resurrection is a sign of a much greater reality, a sign of a much, much greater reality, God has not left his people. That's the sign we're supposed to see. God has not left his people. See the mission does not end with a stone rolled over the entrance of a cave in Jerusalem. At Easter the church celebrates being sent on a spirit empowered mission of the church. We we are sent. On Easter we, we celebrate the fact that that we're sent. See, the resurrection of Jesus, you guys, is not a static event. It's not a static event that that extols, you believe in me, you you believe that that, that I came back from the dead, and you get to have death, happy face, heart, thumbs up, emojis. That's not emojis. That's not it. See, Pastor Mike tries. (laughs) Laughing with me, right? No, she says, no. You're not. Go home and start a Facebook account, Pastor Mike. See, the resurrection is ascending. It doesn't end there and it doesn't end then. The adventure of Jesus is not broken by the crucifixion. The the adventure of Jesus is handed to us on the morning of the resurrection. The adventure of Jesus is handed to the mission of the church is handed to us on Easter morning, which is why Jesus says, as the Father sent me, now I send you. As I've been sent, now you go. He doesn't ask us the impossible. He sends us with what we need. He doesn't ask us to do impossible things. He gives us what we need for the, for the journey. Now, we understand we say this sentence all the time. You can't, but with him you can. You can't, but with him you can. Let me give you an example, a little earthly example of this. Years ago, 1989, I was the pastor of a small church in western Colorado. It burned to the ground. Burned to the ground. We lost everything. But here's the thing. We didn't know all the things we had, really, for sure. Now, after the fire burned, first thing we wanted to do is to make sure that the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, the fire marshals, believed that we didn't start it. (laughs) And we didn't. (laughs) So that was good. But after that, you've got to do an inventory. So we called in the Sunday school teachers and they sat down and they wrote out a list of what they thought was in their Sunday school room. We called the volunteers that worked in the office and they wrote down what they thought was in there. We did everything in the church like that and typed. This was pre-computers. We typed. We didn't have an IBM selector anymore because it, you know, had burned. So... Um, Somebody got a typewriter, and they typed all this list, and we monetized everything. We said, this typewriter was worth this much, all this stuff. We had all this stuff. We had 32 pages of inventory of that church, totaling $540,000 of loss. We had an insurance policy that would cover that, but we had to convince the insurance company that that's truly what we had lost. So we had to have a negotiation. So, so Church Mutual Insurance was a big church uh, provider of insurance was coming out to meet with us after we were all done, and we were meeting uh, in, in, a, uh, in a restaurant. And, and on my side of the table, on the church side of the table, we had Clyde Ballster, who was a trucker and the uh, um, board, of chair, uh, board of Trustees chairperson. Next to him was Gerald Anderson, who was the uh, owner of an IGA grocery store, which is little grocery stores in small towns, myself. And then to my right was an older gentleman. And I kind of knew him, but these two guys said we need to have Harry Landsman come because, in quotes, he knows a lot about insurance. I didn't know what he knew about insurance, but he had this giant house outside of town, outside pool, and a long lane to it. And they said, "Well, Mister Lansman knows a lot about insurance, so we need to have him there." I'm like, "Okay." I still don't know what he knows about insurance, but he knows a lot. So into this come these three guys from Indiana. One, you know, is uh, is a lawyer. The second is a lawyer. And the third is, uh, you know, our insurance underwriter, the claims adjuster. They're all dressed in 500 to $1,000 suits. Over on our side of the table, trust me, in western Colorado, I'm just glad nobody was wearing a gun, okay? Because there's a lot of varmints out there. So we're just dressed like, you know, people that live in that area. But we start the introduction. Clyde Balser says he introduces himself to everybody. Gerald Anderson, you know, introduced himself. I introduced myself. And then Mr. Landsman says, Harry Landsman to the lawyer, Harry Landsman to the lawyer, to And then he says, shakes hands with the insurance guy. He says, I'm Harry Lansman. And the fellow who is about my age now, that was reached across, said, Mr. Lansman from Kemper? And he says, yes. We're still standing up. We haven't been sitting down. He points down on the the pad of 32 pages that says $540,000. And he says, Mr. Lansman, do you think this is right? He said, I do. And this insurance guy turns to the two lawyers and said, who had flown all the way from Indiana for this meeting, said, all right, fellas, let's go to breakfast. Well, I didn't know. I knew Harry knew a lot about insurance. I didn't know he was one of the three founders of Kemper Mutual. (laughs) You know, he wasn't going to lose an insurance argument, right? So they just paid. See, without him, we were going to argue for paper clips and books and all this kind of stuff, but with him, what seemed impossible to us was doable. Now, in much greater method, uh, method, with Jesus, without Jesus, we can't. You know, we're told to make disciples of Jesus Christ for a transformation of the world. You can't do it. You can't. Not on your own. But with him, you can. Without him, can't. With him, you can't. Which is why Jesus says... As I send, as the Father sent me, I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Be empowered. I am coming with you. I go with you. I don't send you out on your own. I'm coming with you. And His presence is everything, because with Him we can. Without Him, we don't have a shot. So on what mission are we sent? What what mission is the Church of Jesus Christ sent? We're we're to reveal, and Jesus says, Reveal me to the people. Reveal God to the people. Reveal who I am to the people and begin with forgiveness. Which brings us to the second question. How are we to forgive sins? How are we to forgive sins? Well, I'll tell you this. I know this for a fact. Not by picking up the gavel of judgment. Do not pick up the gavel of judgment and think you're forgiving people's sins. Because I'll tell you what. You can go to school. You can go to work, whatever. And you can pull your non-Christian friends. Because most non-Christians I've ever met don't, very, don't know very many scriptures. But they know at least this one. And usually they know it in the King James Version. And they'll give it to you when they think you're judging them. Because they know this scripture, judge not lest you be judged. They know that one, don't you? Has somebody pulled that out of their quiver at you? I'm a non-Christian, but listen, you Christians, judge me not lest you be judged. They know that one. And do you know why? Why? Because there's a lot of Christians that think that they're going to solve the world by picking up the gavel of judgment and convince others that they're simply wrong. But forgiveness does not come by being the arbitrator of humanity. It does not come by giving everybody the chapter and verse where they're wrong. Forgiveness of sins is not a judgment thing. Repeat after me. Forgiveness of sins is not a judgment thing. It's important to embed that in your mind. It's important to know that forgiveness of sins is not a judgment thing. For the people that we live with, for the people that we love, for the people that we go to school with, the people that we work with, forgiveness does not involve judging them. Forgiveness involves giving them a witness to the identity of God as you see him in Jesus Christ. That's how people come upon forgiveness. See, to offer forgiveness, we're to unceasingly witness to the love of God in Jesus Christ. Unceasingly. Never stop being a witness to Jesus Christ. And all we have to do to witness to him is follow our leader. Understand that Jesus loved everyone he met. He he took people just the way they came to him. And he loved them. Now, did he always leave them the same? No. No. But he received them for who they were and loved them the way they are because he knew that they were his. And, and here's where the transformation comes, as the community of faith reveals God to the world, the church makes it possible for people to choose. We all love choice. It gives the opportunity for people to choose to enter into this relationship with the God of limitless love. And that's where the forgiveness comes in. Because in choosing or rejecting a relationship with God, you choose to to receive forgiveness or to retain your sins. And hear that again. In, In choosing or rejecting a relationship with God, you're choosing forgiveness or the retention of your sins. And what our responsibility as Christians is to put that opportunity out in front of people. Our witness... Of Jesus Christ then is a call to forgiveness. We're calling people to be at one with Christ and in that oneness they will receive. We will receive our forgiveness. A third question. Why is the challenge to stop doubting and believe necessary for us? Why is that challenge so important for it? You see, John chapter 20 is a see and believe passage. They see stuff, they believe it. We're kind of a see and believe kind of people, aren't we? See and believe is kind of who we are. It, but I want to tell you this, it's easy to believe what we see. Let me give you a little quiz, okay? Imagineate yourself at the corner of 7th Avenue and 12th Street, right here, right outside this part of our church. Remember, where the old Jiffy Lube is. And let me ask you a question about that. Do you believe that the building that was built there was poorly constructed? Yes? Yeah, I believe it was too, because we know that because it fell in on itself, right? They built it for two years, then it fell in on itself. Now we have kind of another concrete block there, all right? But I want to make the case. I want to make a case for you, in front of you, that you do not have to believe that. You do not have to believe that that building was poorly constructed, and here's why. Because you could see that it was. The facts are in. Belief is unnecessary. You know, somebody could say, do you believe in Pastor Mike? I don't have to. I can see him. Right? We don't have to believe that that was poorly constructed. We can see that it wasn't. Our our experience can force us into belief because the facts make believers of all of us. If you see something, you can believe it. The facts make us believers of everything. The problem is, sometimes we don't have all the facts. Sometimes... The end is not in front of us. You know, Simon was talking about Abraham earlier today. And the thing about God says with Abraham, he says, believe in me. And Abraham says, in what? And he says, I'll make it known to you. But not yet. Not yet. We have a problem with that. Because we're asked to believe what we do not see. Let me, let me give you an example. There's a lot of easy examples I could share with you. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a hard one. Some years ago, I was a police chaplain. When you're a police chaplain, you do some training. You work with the local law enforcement agencies. You go and counsel them when, they're having, when officers are having issues. You go to hospitals and prisons uh, to see people. And sometimes you're, you're called out on catastrophic issues. And this is a story about one of those. You know, U.S. Highway 20 goes east and, east and west through uh, north-central Iowa. And uh, a person um, from our town had come out of McDonald's and gone down the off-ramp to US-20, so she was heading east in the westbound lanes at normal highway driving speed. And after about two miles, unfortunately, she found a minivan to collide with. She was killed in the accident, as were the the minivan driver and the passenger in the front seat. And that's where I got called. The van had gone upside down. And of course, the van didn't have a lot of structural integrity in there, but and the, as the two parents were sitting in the front seat, uh, quite a bit deceased, um, I was called as the firefighters and first responders were trying to extract the three children who were upside down in their car seats or their seatbelts in the back seat. And so I came out there to the broken window of the minivan, shoved myself in a push-up position through it, and began to talk to these three little children. Now, I was seven-year-old, had no question as to what was going on. And it was horrible for her, and she knew. The other two were so little, all they knew was that they were scared and upside down. And so I started comforting them. I started singing little Jesus songs to them. Started, and all got these saws going on, the jaws for life and all that. In the middle of all of that, and I know that this person was very much focusing on what they were doing, on trying to extract these children from the car, but he knelt down and stuck his head in the window to these three children who had lost their parents. And and they were not in I- they were in Iowa but they had Minnesota plates on, and he and he simply said, "Don't worry, everything's going to be okay." Now I know what he meant. Don't blame him for that. But in my mind, I thought, "How could you possibly know that? We don't even know who these children are related to. We just know that they're outside of Webster City, Iowa, and t- their their two parents are deceased." We don't know what their future is. And so, you know, I continue to comfort, her, comfort them and such, such like that. But we know for sure. And somebody asked me later, well, what happened to them? I said, well, that's part of the question. I don't know. We got them to hospital and some aunt or uncle came and scooped them up. And that's all I know. So I don't know how things turned out for them. I don't know if everything's okay for them. And that's part of our life. So Because we're, we're see-it-and-believe-it kind of people. So how do we grapple with the fact that oftentimes we have to believe in what we do not see? See, the doubting Thomas concept for us is comforting. Because oftentimes it represents us. We, we want to see things. We, we want to see them with our own eyes. Because Thomas says, I'll believe it when I see it. Now, let's not get too harsh on Thomas. Because what Thomas did was, he didn't believe the disciples who told them they saw a living Jesus. But guess what? Those very same disciples didn't believe Mary when they, when she said to them, We've seen, I've seen the resurrected Jesus. And guess what? Don't get on Mary, uh, on the disciples too much. Because when Mary met the angels in the tomb... She didn't believe that he'd been resurrected either. They were she was looking for a dead body. Just like Thomas. So don't call him doubting Thomas. That that phrase is not in the in the scriptures. He's like us. I I'll believe it when I see it represents a human condition. It represents our failures. It represents our our, our frailties. I'll see it when I believe it. That's us. Maybe we're skeptics. Maybe something bad has happened to us along the way. Maybe we've been disappointed. Maybe we've been hurt. Maybe we've been placed, you know, put our trust in the wrong places. But regardless, this doubt, I'll believe it when I see it, is the default human position. I'll believe it when I see it. Which, incidentally, is something we say about things we don't expect to happen, right? Right? I'll believe it when I'll see it. That's something we say about things we don't expect to happen. Oh, I'll believe that when pigs fly. I'll believe that when the Cubs win the World Series. Those are the kind of things we say, right? It's things we don't expect to happen. So Thomas then and now represents many people. I'll believe it when I see it. Unless I see the holes in his hand and put my fingers in them and touch his side, I will not believe it. So see the next part of the narrative. Thomas says that to the disciples. Jesus is not there. The door is locked. And the very next thing that happens is Jesus finds himself, puts himself inside the locked door with Thomas and the disciples. And without hearing what Thomas said, according to the story, he says, Thomas, look at my side, feel my wounds touch my side. And Thomas, true to his word, who said, I'll believe it when I see it, saw it and believed, and said, My Lord and my God. And he became, as many of you know in the later church, one of the most voracious disciples that ever lived on top of the earth. So, what about us? See, we can't revive, we can't spin the Wayback Machine and get ourselves back to first century AD. So, here's what the gospel claims for us. You don't have to be there to be there. You don't have to be there. You don't have to be in that room in Jerusalem to be there. And that's why Jesus says, he turns to us, I think, in in verse 29 and says, blessed are those who believe but do not see. See, being a first generation Christian is not a prerequisite to faith. Being in that room is not required. Later generations are not at a disadvantage. We can fully experience Jesus and receive Him by knowing the Jesus of the gospel, immersing ourselves in His truth, and find the fact that we can come face to face, see Him and believe in him. See, the story of Thomas is a story of hope and promise. It's not a story of reprimand. It's not a story of judgment. See, the later generations, which is you and me, will experience the grace of God and Jesus like those before us and be given the opportunity to proclaim for ourselves, my Lord and my God, and turn our entire orientation and affiliation to him. You see, a faith that believes heroically can know God firsthand. A faith that believes heroically can know God firsthand. See, faith is much, much bigger when it steps forward without tangible. Without the tangible things and can be trusting. For a faithful person, now try this on, try this on. This is, a, this is not a wordplay, but I want you guys to think about this. I'll believe it when I see it. For the faithful can be transformed to I'll see when I believe it I'll see when I believe it if you immerse yourself in the gospel and you believe it you shall see the living Lord and our hearts will be ready to do God's work in the world. This is the faith that sees Jesus as he truly is, the Son of God. This is the faith that sees Jesus as he truly is, the good shepherd that's present here in our lives to guide us and, 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 and help us through the way. This is the faith that makes possible the new life underneath the umbrella of the limitless love of God. And our fourth question is this, so why did John write this gospel? I mean, Pastor Keith and I have been pounding away at this since December of 2014. It must be important to read, and why did John write this gospel? There's an interesting twist here in the last pages of John. You know, some of you watch sitcoms or other television stories where the the actors are doing their acting and all of a sudden they just stop and they turn towards the camera and then they say something. And, and that saying of something is, uh, they're saying right to you what's going on. They've taken a step out of character. See, here in this story, at the end of it, what, what Jesus does is, is the, is John the Gospel writer turns right towards his audience and tells us why he wrote the Gospel. And he says, I did not write this gospel to provide a biography of Jesus' life. I did not write this gospel so that you might know about some guy that actually lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago, and that you might chase around finding to see if there is a historical Jesus. No, it's written for one purpose, and one purpose alone. And that's to encourage belief in Jesus as God's son. That's it. That's why he wrote this book. The signs of Jesus that show us that his continued presence of the Good Shepherd are all right there in the book. And that's the purpose he writes that. And he says that at the end, and that you might believe and live moment by moment with him. That's why the gospel is written. And may you do all that you can to live out its truth. May we pray. Lord God, we we apologize for being those people that often times say, I'll believe it when I see it. Because you've already shown it to us. So let us be those that are transformed and say, Lord, I'll see it when I believe it. And I believe in you, Lord. And we believe in you and we know that you are filling us with the Holy Spirit and sending us on this great mission of making disciples of all in this world. So Lord... Uh, let us be useful for that mission. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray.
0: Amen.